Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures in Cincinnati, Ohio. In this episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Dr. Anant Manabushi, Professor of Biomedical Engineering at my alma mater, Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Matabushi is also the director for the Center for Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics. Anant has a very distinguished background with over 100 patents and counting, 350 peer-reviewed articles and journals, and a huge staff of over 60 students, postdocs, and other faculty at Case Western. Cleveland is a very interesting ecosystem because you have the convergence of a technical institution like Case Western Reserve, the third largest VA hospital in the country, university hospital systems, and the Cleveland Clinic. The collaboration across institutions and disciplines really helps them understand each other and work towards a common goal. And that's where the magic happens, and that's how we create a real impact for the future. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Anant Matabushi. Well, welcome, Dr. Anant Matabushi, to Fast Frontiers. It is an uh, honor to uh, interview you today and, and to uh, learn about what you're doing and, and your work there at Case Western Reserve University. For our listeners, uh, Dr. Matabushi is uh, the F. Alex Nason Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Case Western Reserve University and Director for the Center for Computational Imaging and Personalized diagnostics. He's truly a pioneer in the area of using information, machine learning, AI applied to healthcare. Has or nearly 100 patents, but it's changing by the day, as, as we were talking about, and authored over 350 peer-reviewed uh, articles and journals. Uh, so your work is followed literally all over the globe. And we're lucky enough to have you in Cleveland at Case Western so thank you, and I'd love to just spend a little bit more time understanding your background and how you came to be where you are today. Yeah, well, I think uh, perhaps in these in these times, uh, as the ones that we live in, I guess maybe the first thing I should say about myself is I'm an immigrant, a very proud immigrant. I grew up in in Mumbai, in India. I did my bachelor's degree in in, in biomedical engineering. About 22 years ago, I came to the U.S. to do my master's in biomedical engineering at the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, following that, uh, got an opportunity to do a Ph.D. in bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. And I think that's really where I really started to think about how there was this real opportunity to meld you know, bioengineering with a lot of unmet clinical needs. Uh, I, I think I truly got an appreciation for the pain points uh, for clinicians and, and really getting a sense of you know, how medicine is practiced at uh, Penn over the course of my PhD. You know, it, it, it was introduced to the world of uh, you know, pathology, introduced to the world of radiology, and given my bioengineering background, started to think about how could I use bioengineering and panel recognition and artificial intelligence and apply it to addressing some of the pain points for radiologists and pathologists. Got my PhD in 2004 from Penn, was lucky to uh, transition to a faculty position in biomedical engineering at Rutgers University, where I set up a, a lab on computational imaging, personalized diagnostics, 
was promoted, got tenured while I was at Rutgers. My lab grew in size. We were about 30 people in the group. 2012, I came to give a talk at Case Western, and um, that talk, unknown to me at the time, was it was also a um, a secret interview, I guess. <laughs> and uh, just before I left, I was asked about you know what it would take for me to consider a position. And, and one of the things I noticed immediately about Case, uh, which I really missed at my previous institution, was this amazing medical ecosystem. Right? I mean, you've got this amazing technical institution. But what was truly profound was the proximity, the geographical proximity of this technical institution, you know, right next to Metro, you know, the third largest VA in the country, university hospitals, and then, of course, the second largest medical enterprise in the world in, in the Cleveland Clinic. And, and I appreciated this perhaps because I'd done my PhD at Penn and because you know, bioengineering uh, was literally across the street from the hospital, right? So the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania is just across the street from, uh, from bioengineering. And so when I came here and I saw that, it was immediately just this, this flood of memories for me back to my grad student days. And I looked at this and I said, wow, this is just an amazing ecosystem. Because one of the things I couldn't offer to my students and my trainees um, and my previous institution was that kind of proximity the ability to connect with, with, with the people, you know, for want of a better word, my customers, right? I mean, the people right. who I was developing and doing the research for addressing these pain points. Saw that, I just uh, immediately recognized the unprecedented opportunity that that provided. Uh, and then you decided to, um, you know, uh, talk, to the, talk to the missus, decided that this, uh, this could be an opportunity. And so transitioned in 2012 to Case. And Tim, thank you for the kind introduction. I should probably also add that in the last couple of years, apart from my faculty role and director of the center at Case Western, I'm also a part-time federal employee now. So I'm also a research health scientist at the VA. And I think the reason I mentioned that is because I want to do a shout out to the VA, which of course is the incredible you know, enterprise that takes care of our veterans, but also just a further testimony to this unique medical enterprise, medical ecosystem that we have here in Cleveland, which really sets us apart from so many other places around the country and, and really across the world. Yeah, actually, I think the day we met, you were running late because you were getting your federal clearance exam done. And your, your work in the context of the rest of Case Western, you can correct me with the right stats, but your group receives the most uh, funding of any group or any research at, at the university and a large percentage of, of the patent portfolio? Is that right? Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm going to sort of stop short of saying that it is the largest. I, I, I don't want to <laughs> go on record and, 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 and say something that's not true. But yes, I mean, I think that I will say that we've been the beneficiary of a you know, fair amount of federal funding, you know, funding from the National Cancer Institute, funding from the Department of Defense, we do put out a lot of intellectual property. Well, I can say that I think in the last year, in 2019 alone, we, our group was something like 12 to 13% of all the issued patents at Case. And I, and I think that also since we've come, Case has gone up in the rankings in terms of the number of patents issued. I think they went from something like 54 now to 21. Uh, in terms of patents issued. So I'd like to think that our group has had at least some small role to play in that. 
Uh, no, and again, you know, Tim, I just want to come back and say that you know, we've been extremely successful. Our group has grown from 30 people in my previous institution. And when I came to Cleveland, I actually came with 12 people. And I think at last count, we're something like 60 to 70 people in the center, you know, between students, postdocs, faculty, staff, programmers, scientific developers. And again, I think it's just a testimony to this unique ecosystem that we have, the very low cultural barriers that we have to collaboration, which I think uh, too often is taken for granted. Just having been on the East Coast, having trained on the East Coast and spent time on the East Coast, I can say that in Cleveland, the cultural milieu is so different uh, compared to so many other places. The ability to reach out to who you want, when you want, and get a response you know, very, very rapidly uh, is, 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 I think, just is part and parcel of um, you know, Northeast Ohio uh, and, and I think the Midwest. And I think that folks here take it for granted, but having had the luxury of perspective and having spent some time out uh, on the East Coast, I still, I still value it. I still treasure it. I, I, st- I don't take it for granted. And it's, it's this ability for bioengineering to work with the medical practitioners, the clinicians, that's allowed us to really do some really innovative work at that intersection of artificial intelligence and precision medicine. And that's, I think that's really what makes this ecosystem so unique. Yeah, that, that's a, a really important point. And I'd love to dig in a little deeper on it. Can you, can you share a story or an example of that collaboration at work and how it's given you an advantage or led to some insights that you wouldn't have been able to receive otherwise? Well, one is just, um, just the, the way my, my uh, entry to case itself is actually very unique. And it's, it's very unique because of the collaborative nature in which my startup package was put together, right? So I was recruited into engineering, right? I'm, I'm a professor of biomedical engineering. But there was an immediate appreciation that, you know, in order for me to come and build a center on computational imaging and personalized diagnostics, you had to have people pitch in across departments, across schools. And so what was interesting was, you know, the cancer center said, okay, this is a super important area. We know that for the kind of investment needed to really become stellar and, you know, top notch in the country and really in the world, we've got to make an investment. And engineering simply won't have the bandwidth to make that kind of investment. So we're going to pitch in. It was also clear that, you know, we needed to have faculty slots. It couldn't just be me. I needed to have additional faculty slots that we could hire into. And so the School of Medicine said, okay, that totally makes sense. So let's try to figure out a way in which we can come up with two faculty positions in the School of Medicine, but that support the center and that are focused in artificial intelligence. So just the the very nature of my sort of being uh, solicited by case is a reflection of that collegiality, the collaborative spirit across engineering, cancer center, and the School of Medicine. Now, since I've come in the very first year, even though my primary appointment is biomedical engineering, uh, I've got appointments in multiple different departments. I'm, I'm also a professor of urology, I'm a professor of radiation oncology, I'm a professor of radiology, I'm a professor of pathology, professor of general medical sciences, professor of electrical engineering, professor of computer science. And so one of the things that's been quite remarkable is the uh, is just this collaborative spirit, right? That, you know, to do this kind of work that is 
at the intersection of a very technical discipline, artificial intelligence. But it, it only really becomes critical and important and valuable when you connect it to the right clinical problem. And so one of the things that I was able to do very early on was go meet the chairs of all the departments. And they actually, of their own volition, came and said, hey, Anant, you know, we would like for you to have a secondary appointment in our department. And that's opened up you know, opportunities to collaborate. So as an example, uh, my lab meetings, we do lab meetings, it's, you know, even in, in this new normal uh, that we live in, we do all our lab meetings on Zoom. And my lab meetings are attended by radiologists, they're attended by oncologists, they're attended by pathologists, and it, it again just drives home the point that do this kind of research in this area, you need that collaborative spirit. So I have, you know, I don't think you mind me saying it, Dr. Alberto Montero, who's the new chief of breast oncology at the University Hospitals, sits in on our lab meetings. And Joe Willis, who's the vice chair of pathology at the University Hospitals, sits in on our lab meetings. It, it is truly satisfying it's truly compelling you know for me as a bioengineer to see that kind of engagement because mm. they they realize the importance of this area the importance of of this field what would be an example of an insight or a question that they might uh, ask or react to in terms of some of that research and application yeah. of ai one one other example is um, is, is the collaborative work i've been doing with lee ponsky who is the chief of urology at uh very very close friend dear friend of mine. And, and, uh, and I got to know Lee quite soon after I came. And Lee was just about to leave for a sabbatical to Australia, where he spent a year. It was interesting. We just got to meet once before he left. But then he went to a sabbatical. We stayed connected. We wrote grants together. And, and the third vertex of the triangle was Vikas Gulani, who was the chief of MRI uh, at UH. And because myself, Lee, and then subsequently our groups would meet every week, every Tuesday morning, uh, we had a conference room, we would meet every week and talk about how could we bring radiology, urology, and bioengineering together to do something unique and innovative. And uh, that then resulted in a large grant that we were awarded in 2017 to essentially use artificial intelligence with novel MR imaging to identify aggressive prostate cancer. And so, you know, those conversations, those grants really came about because we were constantly talking to each other, understanding you know, the bioengineers, understanding the clinical problem, the clinicians trying to understand you know, the role that imaging and AI could play. And it's those conversations where you, you speak different languages, but as you converse more and more, you start to now get on the same page. You start to get a more harmony in the syntax and the verbiage that people are using. And that's uh, yeah. when the magic starts to happen. I was just going to ask you, how does that impact language and uh, and how you communicate with others? Okay. You know, it, it seems like that's really important to be able to, that they don't necessarily have to know everything about AI. That, that's a fantastic question. And I, I think to all my trainees, this is what I say, listen, pay attention, right? I mean, I know you're excited about your research and you want to talk about your research, but you got to listen. I mean, let me say the greatest compliment I'm given is when I give a talk somewhere and somebody mistakes me for a pathologist or a radiologist. To me, that is the greatest compliment because that means I'm using the terminology, I'm using the lingua franca of my clinical colleagues. And that means I've been doing a reasonable job in paying attention, listening to the problems. 
but it's it's constantly listening, getting out of your comfort zone and listening and paying attention. And that's sort of when you start to get new ideas. But a key aspect is to make sure that you do your homework, but you can't solely, you know, I, I think it's quite clear that if you want to address the problems of tomorrow, in fact, I would argue the problems of today, you can't live in a silo, right? You have to really be thinking in an integrated way. You've got to be thinking in a, in a way that allows you to understand the other problems. You know, it's, it's not like 20 years ago where, where you could be an expert in machine learning and you could just say, well, you know, the clinician will come and say that this is the problem and I'll come up with a solution. I'll come up with a new machine learning algorithm to address the solution. Well, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work for multiple different reasons. But critically, you know, you, if you build a solution that even, think, even if you think it works, you haven't engaged the clinical, your clinical colleague, and therefore you've developed a solution that she or he is divorced from. They don't understand it. They're, they're removed from it. Something that's been very integral to the research that we do is making sure that that innovation happens in a collaborative milieu, right? And, and that's where you start to infuse the domain knowledge that the clinicians bring into the development of the algorithms. And to me, that's really where, that is truly the innovative aspect of the research. I was gonna say, that, it's, that sounds like, I mean, if you think about, you know, machine learning and AI has been around for decades, right? <sighs> Uh, a lot of the a lot of the concepts are still the same. The difference today is we have more data to use, right? So we're digitizing data more than yeah. ever. What you're describing sounds like it could be sort of an, a next frontier in machine learning, which is that fusion of domain knowledge into it. Right. I mean, the, the fact is that it is not easy to do. And in fact, you know, to Tim, just what you said, you know, we got a lot more data. And so a lot of folks, a lot of groups out there, you know, typically tend to take the easier route, right? So which is, I've got a box, I've got a machine learning algorithm, I've got a lot of data. I just throw all the data in the box and see what the box learns. But the problem is when you take that approach, you don't infuse any domain knowledge and you've got a black box, right? And you've got this box that um, really comes up with some prediction, but it's so abstracted that the end user has no clue as to how that box got to its final prediction. And you know, all the oncologists, the clinicians I work with, what we are seeing, what we are finding is that intuition is important, right? I mean, that interpretability is important because you're talking about, you know, this is a really high stakes uh, situation, right? I mean, you, you, the question that I ask my clinician colleagues is, you know, are you gonna trust a box whose interpretation you don't understand to decide whether or not your patient gets chemotherapy right, or immunotherapy. Are you gonna trust that box? And across the board, I just, I, I, I see, you know, a shaking of the head saying, you know, I'm not gonna trust a box where I don't understand where and how that interpretation is derived from. And that tells us a lot. And that sort of reinforces the work that we're doing, which is really invoking that domain knowledge, continue, you know, collaborating closely with the clinicians to make sure that not only do we come up with predictive AI, but interpretable AI. And I think that unfortunately today, because we have so much data, or there's an ability to get to the data, you know, a lot of groups, a lot of companies that say, you know, well, we don't want to bother with the domain knowledge, we'll just throw the data in. And sure, that might work, but you know, inevitably we know with machine learning, we know with AI, there's going to be a time where it doesn't work. And when you don't understand the box, when you don't understand what's going on inside, when it doesn't work, 
you're going to have a breakdown and you're not going to know why it's, why it's broken down. Why is it not working for this new patient or, or, or this new case? So your, your group is Center for Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics. Can you talk more about the personalized side of it? How, many, how far off is that, is that future in your mind where you truly have a personalized you know, treatment regimen for breast cancer for, you know, let's say? How far away are we from that? Yeah, I think that I think we're getting pretty close, uh, Tim. So I think that you know it's a question that comes up often, and like sort of keep saying, you know, we're getting close, we're getting close. But the, the thing is that you know you've got to you know you've got to do the things you've got to do things in a particular way. You know, the world of oncology. This is something that I think a lot of folks who you know live in the AI world or the data science world don't quite immediately understand or appreciate that you know, you've got to do things in a in a particular way, if you want to take this to the next level, and right? you want to translate this, it's important to understand that, and it's not just AI, it's really going to be AI as a medical device, right? It's going to be a diagnostic. And as a diagnostic, you're going to have to go to the FDA, you're going to have to get approval, you know, either a 510K or a PMA or whatever it is. And to get there, you've got to make sure that you do the validation in the appropriate way. And that means making sure that you validate this on the right clinical trials. And so a lot of my time over the last four years has been spent in identifying what are the clinical trials that have been completed that are really appropriate for validation of these tools. Uh, we made a lot of progress over the last four years in getting access to the right clinical trials, uh, got in the digital images, and we've started the process of now validating these tools on those clinical trials. So I'd like to think that, you know, Hopefully, in sort of the next 24-month time frame, we'll be in a position to start to get some of these things out to the FDA uh, to start to seek approval uh, and then go from there. Apart from that, one of the other things has been creating the network. So we've got, uh, again, I come back to Cleveland. You know, the beauty of Cleveland is you know, with our amazing medical partners here, it gives us a fertile ground to also start to prospectively validate some of these tools. So we're working with our partners now to start that process. And then we've also created an international network of collaborations. So we have a, a close partnership with the Tata Cancer Center in Mumbai, the largest cancer center in Asia, where we're starting to validate uh, our tools in breast cancer uh, patients in India and looking to expand that out to oral cancer as well. So uh, it's a process. Uh, unfortunately, none of this stuff you know, happens overnight, but you know, the work, uh, the journey that began about you know, 10, 12 years ago, I can start to see that. <laughs> start to see the light at the end of the tunnel here so right yeah so your work there's an incredible amount of potential and application for your work and the 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 scope of your work and as we've talked about you know when you look at the role of research and innovation and universities and innovation it naturally leads to commercialization right and I'm, i'm a big fan of finding ways to to do a better job i think you know, technology is developed at Stanford, let's say, or MIT, you know, they're in current hotbeds where they're surrounded by capital, but more importantly, they're surrounded by entrepreneurs who know how to translate that research into commercialization. And that's something that I think there's a need and a a huge opportunity too, right? So if I could find five CEOs to work with you, you'd probably have five different unicorns, right? So can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of the opportunities and challenges you see there in commercialization? Yeah, so I think, Tim, I think you, made, you bring up a very important point. I mean, one of the things that 
you know, it's not just, I'm not just talking about my group and the work that we're doing, but, you know, there's a lot of innovation happening in Cleveland, right? There's a lot of innovation happening in Northeast Ohio. Just, even if I talk, just uh, limit myself to biomedical engineering alone. I mean, I've got colleagues at Case in biomedical engineering and across the street, even at the Cleveland Clinic in biomedical engineering, we're doing amazing things. We're doing very, very innovative things. But when I look at my colleagues and I look at my friends and you know, folks who I know in, in the Bay Area or in Boston, you know, they're taking technologies that um, are, are good, but you know, they're, they're raising capital, you know, 30, 40 million dollars and they've got a team and you're running off with it. So I think that there's no doubt that one of the issues that we have is visibility, that um, we're, we, we have some challenges with marketing, some of the really innovative work that we're doing, getting the word out. I think a lot of it is just getting the word out. And I think that's something that personally to me has been a challenge. I think uh, you know, we, when I look at Cleveland, we check a heck of a lot of boxes. We're talking about artificial intelligence and personalized diagnostics and precision medicine. We check a lot of boxes. But the boxes I think that you mentioned, I, I would say it's not even a capital issue. I think it's really about entrepreneurial talent because I think the money is there. It's getting the right team together who can come in and execute. I want to sound like you know the community has not helped. You know, I just want to do a shout out to Beju Shah. You know, he's been awesome. Right? Beju's, uh, uh, you know, previously as uh, you know, head of biomotive, and you know, more recently, you know, has been working very, very closely with me to you know uh, help try to understand and help uh, identify potential partners, you know, here uh, who could help with the trans translation and the commercialization. I would say that the one critical piece is just getting the word out, getting the visibility of the, the amazing things that are happening here in Cleveland. Because we are punching above our weight. There's still this fascination for the coasts. But you know, if I'm completely frank and candid, you know, Stanford, yes, they, they have a lot of folks who are doing artificial intelligence, but they just don't have the medical ecosystem that we have. Now, I mean, I, I would compare the ecosystem we have to you know, the, the Texas Medical Center, right? I mean, the TMC. But even with the TMC in Houston, which I've seen, and I've been to many, many times, it doesn't have what we have, which is, you know, you've got, you got Case Western right in the center of this tremendous medical ecosystem. Um, and even though you know, Houston has, you know, UVH and, and Rice, there's still a bit of a disconnect between, you know, the, the, the universities and the Texas Medical Center. So it, it, the challenge is just sort of getting that word out that, you know, we've, we've got, we with this hotbed of innovation, we've got this, we've got the hotbed of research, my hope is that as we continue to innovate, as we continue to you know, build on our successes, what is going to get out and what is starting to get out. And I think that there'll be an appreciation that you know, there's innovation that's happening outside the coasts. And you know, places like Cleveland are, are really ripe for entrepreneurs who are looking for their next gig. Uh, because there's a bit of a saturation, right? I mean, there's, 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 a, there's a challenge on the coasts. Uh, yes, you've got some, some great universities, but what you've got to also have is, is the a company ecosystem, which we, which we do have here. So I, I, as an eternal optimist, I hope that that will change. I mean, I've already seen in the last eight years that I've been in Cleveland, you know, just the uh, sort of the, the seismic momentum shift and appreciation and engagement with AI. But even four years ago, there was a lot of interest. But the kind of interest that I'm seeing now from our collaborators and clinical colleagues here in, uh, in Cleveland it just is off the charts. So I'm hoping that will also translate nationally and would-be entrepreneurs looking for their next gig are going to look at Cleveland and say, yeah, you know, 
I better check this out. So, absolutely, yeah. Right now, for any entrepreneurs listening who are from the Midwest, from Cleveland, if your spouse is from Cleveland, if you see an opportunity, want to want to build a company in partnering with Anant, that's that's what uh, I look forward to doing with you, Anant, as well. In terms of, you know, obviously more of your technology uh, become commercialized, attract that talent, and really you know, develop that leadership for the region because what you're doing there is obviously really important and they're, they're lucky to have you there. And I, for one, I'm glad you're there at my alma mater at Case Western. Final thoughts, any other uh, areas within healthcare that you think is the next future frontier? I think this concept of sort of AI and precision medicine, but what we're finding is that there are implications in so many other disease spaces. You know, over the last four years, I've had the privilege of getting to know folks at the Cleveland Clinic and university hospitals and start to apply these tools in cardiovascular disease. Uh, we're working closely with the Coli Institute at the Cleveland Clinic and showing the application of these areas to predict response to therapies in eye disease. Uh, we're working with the folks at uh, Glickman uh, at the clinic in, in nephrology and kidney disease. So I think, you know, we're just scratching the surface here. There's just so many opportunities, so many disease sites that uh, are amenable to this kind of research and this kind of innovation. So I, I just think that, um, you know, the key is figuring out the pain points and understanding where these tools can play a role. And that takes time. It takes effort because you've got to listen. Like I said, you've got to understand what the unmet need is. And, and very often it's not coming up with a complicated solution. It's really coming up with actually mostly a, a simple, elegant, interoperable solution that addresses a specific pain point. And this is humongous opportunity. Again, I think to your point, I just hope that you know, folks who are listening you know, appreciate this opportunity that we have here in Cleveland, because I mean, there's just so much innovation and translation that's latent in this town uh, and, and could benefit from additional entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial talent, entrepreneurial resources. Uh, from coming in and taking advantage of that. Well, thank you. Thanks for your 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 optimism and your insights. And I always enjoy talking to you. And I hope everybody listening uh, does as well. You shared a lot of great experiences and and insights that I think uh, others are going to find very valuable. So thank you again, Dr. Matabushi. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Nick Moran, founder and general partner of New Stack Ventures and founder of the first venture capital podcast, The Full Ratchet. 